You know, Jimmy, the other day I was driving up to my house and uh, it was raining outside, kind of one of those unusual days. And I noticed that my gutters on my house were just overflowing. The water was just coming down in some spots and other stuff, it was working fine. Uh, we, I mean, what's going on? <laughs> Buddy, gutters are overflowing, man, they're stuck. Lots of pine needles falling this time of year. So look, I don't have an, a ladder, that's all. And I, you know, I'm also, as you know, not qualified I hope you're not asking own. me. Yeah, I'm not qualified to clean my own gutter. So I called our friend, my friend and yours, Mark Mercer at Under Pressure in Hopkinton. He came out right away, and uh, now my gutters are clean and they're draining properly. Mark's a great guy. We also, when we were there, took a look at the siding on the house, and you know, there's a bunch of stuff growing on the side of it. You know, it builds up over time, and and uh, so we agreed to do some pressure washing next spring. So that's my story. Mark and his team of professionals at Under Pressure, they're my first call now for exterior cleaning. I know Mark, I've known him a couple of years. Um, I was in a networking group a few years ago. The guy radiates integrity, great guy. So give him a try. Under Pressure, washing in Hopkinton, give him a call. I think you'll be happy. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Today is Saturday, December 16th, and welcome to The Hop Take. I'm Peter Thomas. And I'm Jim Scanlon. On this episode, the owner of Hiller's Pizza is back in court, the Fruit Street Bridge is finally open, and Hop News suggests an innovative way to deal with the turnover problem at Town Hall. Plus, we dive into the history of one of the most important firefighting families in Hopkinton. But first, our main story this week is that Lori Nickerson took a seat on the school committee on Thursday night. On Thursday, December 14th, the school committee and select board held a joint meeting at HCAM to discuss the proposed school budget and to appoint a vacancy left by Holly Morand, who joined Hopkinton Youth and Family Services last November. Five candidates threw in for it, but only three were able to show up in person. They were Ashley Fogg, who unsuccessfully ran in last May's school committee election, Jamie Ronka, who serves on various volunteer boards in town, and Lori Nickerson, who held a seat on the school committee from 2014 to 2017 and her last year as the chair of the board. The candidates read a statement followed by a round of questioning by various committee members. Since the appointment is only for five months, which is the remainder of Moran's term, select board member Mary Jo Lafreniere was particularly interested to know if the candidates had given any thought to running in May. Lori Nickerson, who would go on to win the seat, had this to say. The determination has to be made by the end of March. I would need to assess where my family's needs and my career needs are. I'm a general counsel of a biotech company and have um, not extensive work travel that takes me away from town, but just extensive amount of work that I have to cover. Um, so in March, I would make that decision finally. I certainly miss the committee and it was even why I was considering being a part of it. I was at the special town election in November and missed the process. So I think it's a definite possibility, but I would never be one to guarantee you at this point in December what my decision making is going to be in March with three active children and a very busy job. 
So, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on Lori Nickerson finding a seat on the school committee again, uh, you know, being reelected, reappointed essentially to a position she held? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know Lori and really don't know any of the candidates, but I appreciate anyone willing to serve the town in any capacity. That's what makes Hopkins such a great place to live. Um, I do know Lori has a real big job in Waltham, and that's uh, puts a lot of strain on participating at uh, what is really an important role for this town. So you have to kind of take that into account. Um, I think you were telling me she's um, general counsel and head of HR at a company in Waltham. I mean, I used to work in Boston. I know you got to leave this town like at 6 a.m. just to get anywhere in time with the traffic. Yeah, and and she also has three young kids in school. So, you know, she's balancing a lot there. That is a lot. I mean, uh, being a general counsel and head of HR at any company probably puts her as the most important person in the firm, I bet the CEO is probably scared to death of her. But regardless, that's uh, a lot with three young kids. And um, But I wish her the very best. So, you know, before the vote, the members of the select board and the school committee, they went around the room. Each of them took a turn explaining what was important to them in a candidate, which I thought was kind of weird because typically the job description comes before the application. But in this case, it happened after. Uh, one of the members, Amanda Fargiano, said something I found really interesting. Let's have a listen. Um, the other thing I didn't mention, um, that for me personally, I know we're not actually saying who we prefer, but um, we are appointing somebody on behalf of the community, which is a big responsibility because typically we are voted by the community. So um, we are fortunate that there is one person who has been voted on to the committee before by the community. And I think that is something for me to, to consider because we are representing the town. So Fargiano was referring to Lori Nickerson winning her seat in 2014, which was, I will remind everybody, nine years ago. Now, I went back to check the results of that election. There were two seats available and three candidates running in a contested election. But Lori was not the top vote getter. Kelly Knight was the top vote getter. She had 366 and Lori came in second place with 340. In total, Lori got only 27% of the votes. Now let's compare that to Ashley Fogg, the other candidate who ran just last year and received 616 votes, almost 84% more than Lori did. Wow. And that was nine years more recently yeah. than, than the, the last election. So Jimmy, does the argument that Nickerson enjoys broad support in town hold water? I don't know. It's um, tough to say. I mean, looking back nine years is in any town, particularly ours as well, is uh, that's a completely different profile of what's going on, what's happening, current events. I mean, uh, certainly asked the question is, is she best suited for the role? Is she does she have the broad support? I don't know. I mean, the, the electorate changes. Yeah. I mean, you could look at it a different way, too, and say it's really an irrelevant question because she has experience in the budgeting process, which is the most critical thing that the school committee needs help with right now. And she's done that before. Well, that does mean a lot for a lot of residents that are really concerned about that hypersensitive issue. So um, I can certainly see both sides of the argument. Now, there's one other historical point in Nickerson, and that is that she's an attorney. And she had left the school committee in 2017 but in 2020, she filed a complaint against the school committee, two members of the school committee for having uh, what she 
claimed was a, a, a meeting in violation of open meeting laws. Now, this led to a subsequent investigation. This was a complaint filed with the state attorney general. It led to a subsequent investigation. Um, and the two members of the school committee who were both elected were, uh, were exonerated, essentially, of any wrongdoing. Uh, but having gone through that process, uh, they both they both resigned. They, they left one day, one after the next, just two weeks after they were cleared of any wrongdoing. So what's your take on that? Well, well just as you were speaking, it just reminds me that there's a lot of people out there that just have a general disdain for attorneys, for lawyers. And it's, you know, sounds like lawyer bullying to me, quite frankly. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, she uh, conducts herself in the next five months and, of course, whether she runs again because she made it clear that uh, she would have to consider that in March. She made it clear that uh, she wasn't sure she was going to put herself through an election. And, and when you think about the continuity of the school committee, especially when we've just voted to build a new school, it would be nice to know that the person that was taking this seat is committed to running for the next or serving for the next three years. Yeah, I agree. You know, I'm wishing her the very best and we'll see what March brings with it. And a a new election, of course, um, gives everyone a chance to participate in the process. On Wednesday, the owner of Hiller's Pizza, Petros Peter Sismanis, was back in Framingham District Court on a motion hearing. Sismanis stands accused of one count of indecent assault of a minor and two counts of witness intimidation, stemming from an alleged incident that took place on January 12th with an underage female employee at Hiller's Pizza. According to the DA, Sismanis offered to take the teenage victim downstairs to show her the inventory. He stated that the defendant sat in a chair and that while he was sitting, he put his arms around her waist and placed his hand on the center of her back. The alleged victim also stated that he then stood up and began to hug her and kiss her on the mouth while holding his hand on the center of her back. She tried to pull away and the defendant continued kissing her. The DA also alleged that Sismanis pleaded with her to keep it quiet and that when her mother showed up to get her, Sismanis attempted to prevent them from leaving the premises. This week's hearing was about evidence and whether it had been exchanged between the prosecution and the defense. Readers will recall that a few months ago, the defense complained that the Hopkinton Police Department had not turned over all of the audio recordings that they had requested. Last week, they confirmed that in fact, all the ex evidence had been exchanged and the judge set a date for the trial, which is next March. So here's our take. First, he's innocent until proven guilty. We need to say that. That, yeah. is, that is absolutely the law of the land and everyone is owed a fair trial. Agreed. But it is also true that he is a convicted sex offender. He, he raped a woman and pleaded to a lesser charge, accepting a bracelet for several years, and he was forced to register as a sex offender for 20 years. And that registration just expired in 2022, in fact, just a month or so before this latest alleged incident. So at the time of his sentencing, the judge deemed him a flight risk. He worried that he would go back to his native Greece. So that was another reason to put a, to put a bracelet on him. Jimmy, what do you, you know, what's your analysis of this story? Well, this is horrible by every measure. I mean, there's two separate incidents here. One, the current alleged crime, which is 
terrible. It's horrible. It affects us here in Hopkinton. And, of course, he's a convicted sex offender, uh, which doesn't cast a really good light on this guy's character. In fact, you know, I just think scumbag is probably the most appropriate term that comes to mind for me. But that's just me as a private citizen. Uh, what I find most shocking is it doesn't seem to be a big issue around town. I see these Hiller's pizza cars driving all over the place. Business seems to be good. And I just, who's supporting this business? I don't get it. I just really, it's just um, perplexing. And I just, I don't know. It's um, something I can't get my arms around. Yeah, I mean, I I am always surprised to see if I go to a high school event, like a, a banquet or something like that, and I, you know, they often will roll food out. And I am always surprised to see Hiller's pizza boxes. I mean, it is true that for years, Hiller's Pizza has sponsored these events and provided, um, you know, food at a less a reduced cost and things like that. But I still think about, you know, the parent that is coordinating that event and making that decision. It's just shocking to me. What is it? What message does that send to the poor family that's currently going through this crisis, right? You have, if the school is actually taking, whether it's being donated or they're purchasing the pizza, it is, I mean, at some point you got to think, wait a second, we've got a real situation here. You got to kind of separate things out until let the dust settle. I mean, I, I just don't agree. I would, I'm just flabbergasted that uh, there's not more of an, of an issue, an outcry from from the folks around town. Yeah, so his trial is in March, and of course we will be following that and probably commenting on it, but I'm it sure. is a jury trial. And so um, and that, that was what they chose. They chose a jury trial, not a judge trial. And um, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. Our third story today. On Friday night, the Fruit Street Bridge that crosses the Sudbury River and the MBTA tracks finally opened after being closed for nearly two years. About fucking time. On Thursday, workers were putting the final pieces of trim on the bridge, but by Friday night, the job site was cleared up and cars were moving. The bridge was scheduled to reopen more than a year ago, but when disassembling the old structure, Workers discovered several issues with the pylons and other support systems, which forced them to make unforeseen repairs. That is at least the official narrative from MassDOT. However, there's another story here, according to usually is. Local, local residents. For, first thing I want to say about this is that it's amazing to me how excited people get about public works projects in town. I mean, they, the social posts that when we, we did a story on this and the Facebook post went out, say, Hey, good news the, the bridge is about to open. That social post continues to get tons and tons of engagement. People are like, Oh my goodness, it's amazing. And Oh, it's so great. And you know, look, that is a lot to be proud of. Okay. The, you know, and also people have been disrupted for a long time. I mean, you, yes. how do you get to oh, Southboro that way? I mean, it's a different. pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, so that, that to me is, uh, is great. Now, some people were celebrating it. Some people were bemoaning the length of the project. But the thing is, some of the locals that live nearby have done their own investigative work on this yeah. and to try to figure out, you know, why is this project so delayed? Because it was more than a year. Oh, yeah, it was closer to two years, wasn't it? it I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, it was it, exactly, but it was more than a year late. And, and one Saddle Hill Road man uh, who has texted me on the side and also put some comments on Hop News, claims that he spoke with a couple of the workers down there at various times. And they said the project was delayed because there were tons of screw ups and mistakes made. 
And there were actually contractors that walked off the job. Gee, I wonder if they had the same engineers and architects that were putting the, uh, the bike path in on Main Street. And how, you know that, and how to redo that thing? <laughs> wow! You know, that, you're really you're really opening up a can of worms with that one. We'll yeah. have to get to that in a future episode. The, yeah. the oh, Main gosh, Street. Really well, why don't we bring some some bicycle experts in? Who you know? The funny thing, just to take a quick side note on that, is that nobody likes the Main Street project. Not even the bicyclists like the bike path <laughs> because they're saying it's dangerous. The grade, they're like it's too wide, it's too narrow. I mean, they you couldn't please anybody with that one. I mean, the, Utter definition of a shit show is really what it is. So getting back to the bridge for a minute, it, it's been out since February of 2022, 2021. I'm not sure. Anyway. Long enough. Yeah, long enough. So the demo apparently went fine and it was really quick and they got all this stuff out of there. Oh, but good at breaking things, I guess. Yeah, yeah the easy part. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> but, the, but the contractors apparently drilled wrong and then the state had to switch drilling companies. Shocker. So... So there was that. Now the con the other thing too is that the contractors that worked uh, there and were that walked off the job they were pissed because the MBTA put restrictions on them with respect to the work they could do around the passing of the train. They could not work twenty minutes before a train was coming by, and they couldn't work twenty minutes after the train passed. So they were like, we can't even get anything done here because how often do trains go by? Well, often I guess they're not union guys. I mean. It sounds like a union job. And, uh, and so they, yeah, so they were like, forget it. And, they, and they, they walked off the job. So anyway, here's the good news. The bridge is open. Thank goodness. This week, Hop News published an opinion piece calling for the town to create a new benefit to attract and retain their staff. This is in response to the serious turnover problem the town has been grappling with in the past few months. The idea is to let any full-time employee of the town, which includes teachers, enroll their children in Hopkinton Public Schools. Though there are approximately 580 full-time employees, our calculation is that this is very likely to result in just 36 new students in the school system. So out of more than 4,000 students we currently have, this is a very small number. And there may be a way to do this at zero cost to Hopkinton taxpayers. It would require the school committee to allow inter-district transfers, which is a program created by the Massachusetts School Choice Law. The sending school district is required to pay the tuition of the receiving district. Now we do this today with special ed, for example. Sure. If there are accommodations we can't provide, we send them to another school and we pay the tuition. A program like this would help Town Hall attract and retain quality talent. Our school system is the number one in the state and it is our crown jewel. So we should be showcasing it to bring this kind of caliber of employee that the town deserves. So this is a new idea uh, and the town is bleeding and I feel like we need to do something. What do you think, Jimmy? Well, I'm torn, right? I mean, clearly we have to do something to address the issue that town hall, it's a total disaster over there. And if allowing some of these folks to bring their kids into our school system to provide us with the opportunity to attract the best talent, then I'm for it. Uh, of course, people staying on the job more than a year or two or three, that's important. But uh, overcrowding is an issue, 36 kids. Uh, I haven't seen the math, so I'll take your word on that. But um, when you're already at capacity, one extra kid's a lot. You know, 36 kids doesn't seem like a whole big number, but 
what's the number been in the last few years? I mean, it seems like every time we build a school, we got to expand it or add an addition in the following year. Uh, so I'm worried about that, of course. The logistics are a problem, but as you indicated, the current school district would absorb that cost. When you say Hopkinton might be in a position not to pay anything, that just... I'm always suspect to that. Seems like we're always well, for something. Yeah, and to be clear on that, that would require the school committee to vote to allow interdistrict transfers. Now, the question that we have for the school committee is, is there a way you can vote to allow an interdistrict transfer for a student without opening it up to everybody who wants to do an interdistrict transfer? Because you'd have to be able to say only interdistrict transfers for qualified town employees, which would include full-time employees. And uh, if you decided not to be employed, if you terminated your employment or we fired you, then your kid couldn't go to school in Hopkinton anymore. Well, maybe we could leverage Ms. Nickerson's legal background to help us with this one. Well, that might be helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, there, the cost per pupil. So let's say in the worst case that we can't open it up to interdistrict transfers, but we can allow students to come in for employees. The cost per student is about $15,000 per child. That's what we pay today per pupil spending. And I will point out that that's far less than um, Weston Public Schools, for example, which pays $29,000 per pupil. Um, so Hopkinton gets a lot of bang for the buck when you think about it. Being the number one school system, we're, we're number 289 in the state in per pupil spending. But there are issues, you know, so, so even assuming, I should say, even assuming that we had to pay the whole amount, if there were only 36 kids, that would be about 500 grand a year. If each family had two kids in, there would be, it'd be about a million bucks yeah. a year. Is that, is that too much to put a benefit like this out for town employees? Well, you know, you'd have to just do a cost-benefit analysis. How many spots in town hall are we looking to fill? What's the current salary? If you were to bump that up 10 15% until you actually bump into candidates, that would be seriously interested in taking the role. You could determine maybe the five or six critical spots, an extra 20000 25000 in salary, then it would it would make sense to do it that way rather than cough up a million bucks to bring all these kids into the school that's already overcrowded. What do you think if there is a if if we do assign a number to this we and we can fifteen thousand bucks is yeah. is about what we say now that's not the marginal cost by the way because you add a student and it it doesn't you don't have to go build a new library when you add it or hire another librarian for every one student right um, so there is a there is a reduced cost per pupil they are but, pretty gung ho about building new schools around here so you never know well true but but I guess the point is if we assign a, an amount of fifteen thousand dollars per kid. Do you think that we could negotiate with a prospective employee and say, hey, you're getting potentially a $15,000 benefit, therefore we could drive the salary down? I mean, if I was in that position, I would certainly take that into consideration. The school system here is phenomenal. It's it's literally having had two kids coming through the schools myself, I, I, it's a, it would be an important benefit for me. So something to consider for sure. You want to talk a little history today, Jimmy, a little Hopkinton history? Of course. We've got a lot of it. All right. Well, in today's History Minute, and this might be a little bit longer than a minute, we're going to tell you about a man named Joseph V. Pine. That's P-Y-N-E. And by all accounts, Joe Pine was a truly great man. He was in Hopkinton at least by 1942, possibly earlier, but that's the first uh, reference that I could find of him. And he ran a gravel operation out of his garage. 
Now his business expanded, so he ended up buying 60 acres of land off of Fruit Street and he moved it there. But Joe was also a firefighter and he's listed as one of three, quote, engineers of the fire department in the 1945 town report. Now, there was no formal training to be a firefighter back then, so I suppose it just required men who were physically fit, courageous, and that wanted to help out. By 1951, Joe Pine was Hopkinton's fire chief of an all-volunteer fire department, and that was a position he'd hold for several years. Yeah, this is a really cool story, Peter. Um, and I'm not sure if people know that at the Mount Auburn Cemetery, right off of May Mayhew Street in town here, there's a monument in memory of all the deceased firefighters from Hopkinton. Uh, but there's a little bit of a secret to that stone that not many people are aware of. If you can get yourself to the other side and squeeze past the monument and the fence that's right next to it, you'll see an inscription that reads, In loving remembrance of Chief Joseph Pine and his wife, Margaret, from the people of Hopkinton, which was dated June 14, 1964. And the Pines lived right on Main Street in Hopkinton, right next to where the current fire station stands today. In fact, the fire station was connected to their home. And it, what's really interesting, I, I thought, was that there were two red phones in the Pine home, one for personal calls, but one for fire business. Margaret was a dispatcher, and before 911 was a thing, uh, the phone would ring and she'd assess the situation, and if needed, she'd blast the siren to call the volunteer firefighter from around town, or she'd just shout, into the room next next door and tell her husband where to go. Yeah, I mean it's 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 so cool to think about you know to, you know we live in an age where we just dial nine one one and and people come running but you know that that was it was very different uh, back then so and people would call the fire department fire department was kind of the mop up crew for everything they would call the fire department for all kinds of things cat in the tree cat in the tree uh, somebody you know obviously somebody hurt there's a fire you know sort of the obvious stuff but uh, Jimmy Pine who is Joe's son. Uh, he recalls his father receiving a call uh, from a farmer uh, whose horse died. And, you know, J Joe's busy and he tells Jimmy, he, Jimmy's like eight years old. And he says, Jimmy, go get the front end loader, gravel operation, right? Sure. Go get the front end loader and drive up to Ash Street and collect that carcass for that guy. <laughs> and, and so since the fire department also, since the fire department didn't own an ambulance, uh, it was not uncommon for Joe and his sons to transport injured people in the back of their family station wagon with Joe speeding down the road and his sons tending to the patient in the back. This is the kind of family the Pines were. I mean, the kind of family that really created a big part of what Hopkinton is today, right? And that's kind of how things were done in Hopkinton back in those days. Uh, but 1964 was a tragic year for the family. Joe would ultimately die in a fire that consumed their house. Earlier that day, he had visited the cemetery where Margaret was buried, having just died two months before. His son, Jim, tells the rest of the story. So, and my brother who was in the army, but he happened to be home that night. He was stationed at Fort Devens or something. He was home as well as my little sister. Uh, another sister was at started college. She was in Boston. My father fell asleep on a couch smoking a cigarette, and he tried to drag the couch out a door, but the, the feet caught on the rug at the bottom of the stairs. Arthur had part of the fire alarm system installed in the house, and fortunately, one of those things like that was right at this hallway at the bottom of the stairs, and that's where a door went out. 
side. So he was trying to bring that couch out there, but it got stalled right there and it, it flared up. <clears throat> and, you know, the fire just took off. And and I, I actually sounded the fire alarm and then went back upstairs. And when my brother opened the window, and there's a porch on both the front and back, and he, he, uh, he put my little sister out on the porch roof on the back and handed her down to a fireman, a policeman, and then we jumped off the front, and you know the house got badly dis damaged. Um, but that's. Um, but then your father, there was a miscommunication, and your father thought that your sister was still in. Is that true? It is because that's what my brother said, and we have a little difference, and it doesn't matter. I made three trips or two trips down the stairs and then I couldn't go back down because the fire got to and said Joe stayed upstairs and, and you know he dealt with our little sister then he threw some clothes on and you know in those days the, the storm windows were things that you put on for the season but he just kicked it out and you know we, we just jumped off the porch and went about it but and, and that's but did your father what I heard was your father went back in no I is that not true no, I don't think he ever went out. I mean, I I was like from you to me in this couch, which, and I'm looking at him through these flames, you know, and he's inhaling them. Yeah. And, and in the end, that's what the doctor said. You know, he inhaled enough flames that it seared the right. inside, and that got infected, and right. that's what, what killed him. It was a tragic ending for a man who meant so much to his family and this town, but Joe Pine's legacy can be seen everywhere you look. Um, he convinced the select board to hire a full-time fire chief, for example. Uh, that man's name was Arthur Stewart, who was Joe's mechanic at Pine Sand and Gravel. Now, Art Stewart, he would not only go on to serve the town of Hopkinton for many years, but he was a founding member of the State Fire Academy, which formalized firefighting education and, and ultimately, I think you could say, saved thousands and thousands of lives. Wow. There's a lot more to tell about the Pines, including how their gravel yard was purchased by the town and is now known as the Fruit Street Complex. But that is a story for another day. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening to The Hop Take, and Jimmy and I will see you around town. <laughs>